From KLCC Media, this is the Oregon Grapevine. I'm Barbara Dellenbach. The Oregon Grapevine highlights fresh-pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. April Dinwoody is a leading thinker about issues of transracial adoption and helps people navigate differences of race, class, and culture. Thank you so much, April, for being on the Oregon Grapevine. I appreciate your time. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Adopted people are in many, of course, if not most families. My mother, for instance, was adopted. My husband's sister was adopted, died before he ever even knew he had a sister. And often I hear people introducing children by saying, this is their adopted daughter, Susie, or their adopted son, rather than just, this is my son. And I'm wanting to start with, why is there such a stigma around adoption? Barbara, what a deep uh, question. And it's one that's not easily answered because when you think about this idea that a child does not stay with their family of origin, it activates a lot of emotion and it, and it really is two things. One, it, it, it is sort of this idea that a child then moves to another family and is parented by them as a, as a manifestation of this transformational love that humans have, this capacity to love people that are not their family, that they can love like family. And then there's this deep and really resonant loss of that child not being with its family of origin. So I think when you, when you hear folks speaking of um, this is my adopted child or this is my um, you know, putting a, a qualifier on it, 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 it can be jarring. And, but I, I do think it sort of harkens back to that idea of, of we have a hard time really understanding that idea of, of children being separated from family of origin in whatever way. Um, and then sometimes I think, you know, that big idea is right next to um, just practical knowledge and information. Sometimes I have to sort of qualify this idea of um, this is my adoptive family because I don't look like them. And it is somewhat, you know, over time has gotten easier, but, you know, the world meets you with these questions that are harder to answer as families and as individuals. So I think it's a both and, and, and not an easy question to answer, but conversations like this help us unpack it. So I appreciate it very much. Now, Holt, it's a well-known adoption agency, of course, founded here in Oregon in the Willamette Valley. And as you know, and many listeners know, the founders brought Korean-born children to the U.S. mostly to be raised by mostly white families. A lot of positive stories, a lot of them not so positive. And and I know that you are a transracial adoptee. And I just liked you to expound a little on kind of that experience and and the good and the bad. And and I know it's not the same for everyone, but your your story. Sure, thank you. So, I mean, I went into temporary foster care right away after being born to my mother of origin, Helen June, she had three children that were born to her and she was parenting them as a single parent and then really needed some time to decide how she might take on a fourth child parent. And and ultimately the decision was made that she wasn't able to do that. And I went from temporary foster care into a pre-adoptive home. And that pre-adoptive home was with the Dinwiddie family in Rhode Island and they are white and I am black biracial. So there was a, a real kind of denial, really, of any issues related to um, anything that was that could be possible in terms of challenges about race and um, even family separation. So I think my parents went into this really 
lovely notion of being colorblind. And that didn't serve me very well, but did kind of happen in, in, in part because of their reality of being white and not really understanding the dynamic dynamics. And the, the system, when we think of agencies like Coat and others, um, didn't really support this conversation or connection to um, differences of race. It was like as if it really didn't matter if you love the children, that's all you really need to do. And know today that there's just there's so much more packed into that so that agencies and professionals really do need to talk about loss and grief and separation and race, class, and culture, because without that, it leaves the children, people like me, to do a lot of that work on their own, which can be a massive weight. And lastly, you know, when I look at my life trajectory and, and the things that I can do today, it's because of a lot of deep personal work, there are a lot of dark places that dotted my life. And I look at my cohort of other adopted folks, transracially, transnationally, and there is you know, statistically significant overrepresentation of attempts to suicide, mental health issues, educational outcomes that are not ideal, um, you know, criminal um, histories, all the things. It doesn't mean that we're bad people. It just means that there are a lot of challenges that went unmet that continue to go unmet and, and leave folks like us who are transracially adopted in situations that um, are, not, are not ideal. What do you think it's important for parents of adoptees, and maybe just specifically transracial adoptees, but adoptees to know and share with their kids based on these situations where, you know, they're loving and they're there and they're taking in this child and they're doing this really important thing. And at the same time, there's a huge piece that they may not know what to do. So what what do you suggest? What's out there? Well, there's a there's a movement, and there's been a movement afoot for you know several years now uh, uh, that really leans into these idea this idea of of, of parent education, both pre adoption and post adoption, uh, and and also post adoption support services, because we we realize through research and understanding trauma and family separation that there are mitigating factors. Um, when adoption does happen and it is outside of a, of a, an extended family structure, um, there are things that parents and professionals can do to help create a smoother path. And I think that one of the first things that parents can do is just really sit with a lot of self-awareness around why they're parenting, what led them to adoption, um, was there infertility, are there wounds that need to be healed to help create that, you know, the highest level of engagement with the parent if there was infertility before adoption. Um, many, many different ways in which parents can understand trauma of separation from family of origin and the, the factors that may, that may be present um, within that lifelong journey of adoption. And then I think when it comes to specifically race and, and class and culture issues, it's, it's really one of um, racial identity work. And I think a lot of times, particularly white people don't really understand they have a racial identity and they don't know how that sits next to folks that are not the same race as them. So I feel like racial identity work is, is big for every human being, but particularly parents who are parenting a child of another race, it's, it's, it's urgent. And it's, it's one of those things that there are tools now, there are factors that um, are clear and there are ways that we can run towards them. I mean, my mom is 81 and just now read the book Cast, and it was really hard for her, and I think it was illuminating because she understood me in a very different way, and, and my wish was that she could have read that book a little bit earlier, you know, because I feel like I, I maybe would have had a smoother path if she understood a little bit more about 
uh, differences of race and how that would impact me as a black biracial child in a majority white world. There was a camp which brought together kids who had been adopted in, and were transracially different or you know, transracial kids of, of different race families. What is that camp still going and what, how does it work and where is it? It's called Transracial Journeys. Um, an adoptive mom um, founded the camp because needed, she needed resources for her children. She's a white adoptive mom, adopted two black children, and established it as a, as a way to create community and um, a, a real way in which families that were similar could be together. And, and, and often in their spaces outside of camp, they were one of only a few families, right, that were experiencing transracial adoption. So it's Transracial Journeys, it's um, a camp that we do once per year in August, and it brings together um, anywhere from 30 to 50 families who are impacted by transracial adoption, um, white parents generally with black and brown children. And it's, I mean, it's it's everything that I didn't have as a kid, right? So it's a joy. And uh, I love the time together, three-day camp, and we do lots of programming for the children, for the parents, and then we do uh, programming for everyone together. And it really is filled with a lot of joy. It's also transformational in a lot of ways for parents. Parents can show up at any place in their journey. Some are really have the lights turned on and are doing big work and they're leveling up and they're, they've moved environments. They've gone from a majority white environment to a more diverse environment. They've done some of that big work. Some parents are just literally taking the first step. And when that is present, there's a lot of tears. There can be a lot of emotional activation because they're just kind of learning um, what their child might be experiencing. And so it's a lovely, um, a lot of work, and I am thrilled. I am the executive director of that camp, and it's just one of the many things I do to help sort of pass on to next generations of families um, a, a higher level of, of care and support and um, building that that love into something that isn't just, you know, just transactional, but transformational. April, another organization that I'd love to know about and ask you why it matters is Adoptment, which pairs foster kids with adopted adults. And I wonder why is that particular pairing an important one? Well, um, that is something I founded, um, Adoptment, which is adoption and mentoring um, together. And I founded it really out of um, my own needs. I had found my mother of origin, Helen June. And she was not interested in having any type of relationship with me. It was really challenging. All my life, I heard the story, your mother loved you so much. That's why she made an adoption plan for you. So I thought, well, as a grown-up, and I present myself to be you know, somewhat successful and you know, a good person in the world, I thought, oh, I'm going to be met with open arms. And I wasn't. And it was gut-wrenching. And I have resources. I have a family that loves me. I have you know, all kinds of, of, of ways in which I can caretake myself. And I thought, my gosh if this is hard for me and I have all of this, what's it like for youth in foster care that don't have some of those supports and and some of that access to to what I had? So I I ran in the direction of foster youth um, in in a way that could create these connections to adopted persons who were in many ways experiencing somewhat similar conditions of family separation, just they were older and they had more experience and maybe had more um, healing in their life. And so I created this program. So members of the adoption community as adults, mentor to youth that are in foster care now or have been in foster care. And it's, it's now in its 20th year. I underestimated how it would impact me personally. I underestimated how much I would learn about a system that really is um, challenging in so many ways. And 
the impact of, of knowing young people as long as I have and watching their trajectory over time. So it's really one that I feel super proud of and, and one that I think the adopted adults also really get so much out of it. I mean, we, we come in as mentors, as the grownups, but we leave with a, a full cup and, and, and real, real community that is needed as well. So it's, I, I could go on and on forever, but it's one of the things I'm most proud of. And I, I'm excited. We're moving um, to Vermont. We're going to have a, an, um, an outpost in Vermont. So I'm excited about that. It's great. You can go on as long as you want. I know from conversations with my mother, who is now deceased, but was also happened to be a therapist and an adoptee, we would talk, she would have clients who were adoptees and who would be wanting to find, and, and of course, the, the system for finding your your families of origin is easier, perhaps, than it once was. Things are more open. Things mm-hmm. are more acceptable. But oftentimes, she would counsel these people who were looking for their families of origin because they were having issues with their personal lives currently that you know, it might not be all chocolate and roses when you find them. It might be a situation like the one you had, April, where your mother of mm-hmm. origin really didn't want to have contact. And so it, it is, I think, important to to kind of place that out there, that there was a reason for the adoption. And how do you walk people through that? What do you suggest adoptees do when they're interested in finding their families and kind of warning them that it might be it might be difficult? Yeah, it's so important because, you know, we didn't create these systems, right, but we have to navigate them. And and the system early on was one um, when adoption started to become more of a commodified sort of endeavor and with with market forces attached to it, it it became one of those things where, oh, we, we ought not to be as open with this. It's a closed record. We ought to separate families in a way that is, is really a closed door. So we're, we're, we're working within a space and time that is more open um, by way of technology and things that people can find each other. Sidely, I think we, we realize now that it, it really is unrealistic to think that there isn't an impact of these separations. And not to say that every, every adoption ought to be re, you know, reunited because there are, there are some serious reasons and cautions for which, you know, people reconnect. And I've, I've seen a lot of um, situations, though, that even under the hardest conditions, a parent may be incarcerated, um, there, there can be reconnection. So there's so many elements. But today, as I think about an individual that is um, seeking to reunite, um, especially as adults, right, who have, you know, been through maybe the closed adoption era, it is really important to set a, a really practical and realistic expectation for what might occur. And before any of that even is activated, it's do that curing work, that scaffolding work of, of your own to say, who's my team around me? What kind of mental health supports do I need of, you know, friendships need to be established that, that, or need to be encouraged so that, that I have a community around me of other adopted persons. If I don't have that, it, again, with an adopted person, you're, you're sort of also like keeping track of everybody else. Like, how will my adoptive family feel? Will that change my relationships to them? So there's a lot to consider. And so I always say, like, make sure you are as, as ready as you can. And like a lot of big milestones in life, you will never be fully ready for what could come. Um, and then today for any parent parenting younger children, I just think it's, it's urgent that 
you turn into family of origin and you lead the way to establishing relationships and, and be interested in, in the people that are part of your extended family now in a way that your child open to walk through that door. A lot of times your parents say, oh, my kid doesn't talk about it or when they're ready, I'll do it. And the truth is kids follow parents lead. So if a parent is not interested in family of origin and not asking questions or saying, oh, it's Father's Day, it's Mother's Day, I wonder, honey, are you thinking about family of, or do you think about your, your, your mother of origin? You know, I am, I, I wonder about her, you know, I do have some information about that. Maybe we can talk about it. You know, it's, it's really about the leadership of a parent and, and making sure they're making a way for their children because without that, it does leave children very um, isolated. And when it comes to this curiosity that I think so many people have about where they come from, it's natural to think that that would occur and we don't want anybody to be surprised and we don't want the adopted person to have to shoulder that kind of a burden on their own. Do you think more and more adopting parents are telling their children they're adopted? I know that often happened where they, oh, when they're not ready to tell them yet, we'll tell them when they're 12 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's mm-hmm. changing? It is, but I'm always so surprised when I hear of a, of a modern day moment of a parent, I'll, I'll be at a conference and I'll have given a, a talk and a parent will come up to me and say, you know, April, what is the right time to, to tell? And, you know, I'll ask the question, well, well how old is your child now? I'm like, oh, they're 12. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, wow. Okay. Right. All right. So, and that speaks to a lot of different things. And, and, and oftentimes it's a, it's a, it's a parent who just isn't ready. Don't, doesn't have their language, hasn't emotionally sort of worked through what this means to parent in this way. And, and that's not a shade or, or a judgment on a parent. It's just, I think it's just true. And I think there are ways we could do better with that because when you think about the identity upheaval of a child that has been embedded into a family and doesn't know uh, doesn't have the knowledge, the, the technical knowledge. I, I mean, I would argue to say that a lot of children actually have a sense and a knowing. I have a lot of late discovery adoptees, LDAs, as they're called, that, that knew that in their system, in their, uh, in their mind, they knew and that when they did find out, it was shocking and jarring, but it wasn't a big surprise. They're like, ah, that makes sense now. So I do think it's changing. I think it's changing too because agencies and professionals, for the most part, I mean, not all, but many are are recognizing that they cannot promise birth families anonymity. Um, they cannot offer any type of legal uh, or other protections for parents of origin um, because it's just not realistic. Today, we've got any mean, any number of ways we can get in touch with family of origin through you know, DNA platforms and social media and all the things. So it's not potentially if someone will find out that they're attached to other people, it's when, and we can always do better in readying people for that and, and having these conversations that say, look, that was then, this is now. Um, I don't believe that, you know, this, this amputation of family, you know, or this disconnect of family is healthy in, in, in a way that isn't discussed and talked about and, and, and things. So, I'm hopeful. I'm I'm super hopeful, and I do everything I can in my work to to shine a light on this and to give parents the tools and to hold parents in the experience. Because if I can hold parents that are really leading the way for their children, those children will be better for it. So I I I, I tend to be really focused on parents because they're the ones that are making these huge decisions 
for children. And so, again, I'm hopeful. I, I have to be or else I would be able to get through a day, but um, I'm hopeful. Are there specific resources or organizations or ways that you can suggest for a parent hearing this conversation and realizing, okay, I need to, I want to put some real tangible energy into this. I need, I need to do some things. Where do, where do they go? Well, for anyone that has adopted through an agency, at, at whatever point, I think there's, you know, agencies that have been established for a long time, there are newer agencies, but if you're a parent that adopted through an agency, go back to that agency and those social workers that you worked with to see if, what resources they have, because more and more agencies are providing post-adoption services. Um, and a lot of states are also offering uh, services and support. So there are a couple federal programs, the Quality Improvement Center uh, for Adoption and Guardianship Services. It's the QICAG, QICAG.org, um, is a great resource. There are podcasts and, and videos and content. And, and, and attached to that, there's something called the Child Welfare Information Gateway, the Child Welfare Information Gateway, which is, again, the, the federal government's kind of repository of all things adoption and foster care. I mean, you can look at statistics, you can get... Um, certain resources about like how you parent um, through transracial adoption. So those are two big ones that feel to me like from a federal government standpoint, and there are two projects, well, the QICAG is a project I worked on closely. So it, it, it's one that's been informed by adopted persons as well, which I think is, is also very important. Um, I would also say that for anybody who's on social media, you know, you can you know, search for adopted person's voices, um, adoptee TikTok. I, I say go cautiously as parents because there can be a lot of sharpness for those of us in the adoption community that maybe haven't had the, um, the adoptive family experience that we would have liked or that we deserved. There can be a lot of anger and, um, and, and rightly so a lot of sharp words around the experience. And, and so that's, a caution. So if you're you're up for it, you can dive into Adoptee TikTok. But it's it's full of all kinds of um, uh, experiences of those of us who have been adopted. I have my podcast, Born in June, Raised in April: What Adoption Can Teach the World. That's seven years of, of episodes monthly, and so there are lots of tools. And it's choose your own adventure, really. But I I just say choose an adventure because there is content, there is information. You have to look and find it. Um, but it's there. And if you're committed and you're willing to be self-aware and to take this kind of elevated parenting journey, heaven knows <laughs> the amazing impact it could have, not just on you and your family, but on, on the world, because adoptive families do really signal to the world this idea of transformational love and, and, and this thoughtful way in which you can parent that I think other parenting um, opportunities exist outside of adoption. When you look at adoptive parents that are doing the highest level of work can be models for parents that are, are not experiencing adoption and biologically parenting their children. So there's a lot of upside to like really going deep. Um, but at the end of the day, I do wish that adoption didn't have to happen. I wish parents could take care of their kids. I wish there wasn't, you know, abuse, neglect. I, I, that's my wish. But I know that's not a realistic wish sometimes and in in service of children's like support and, and all the things they need, then if adoption happens, let it happen at the highest degree of engagement and um, let those children be safe, loved, and for. 
You brushed by, this is April Dinwiddie that I'm speaking with, and you brushed by the name of your podcast. I was just about to ask you that question. So promote your podcast for a minute and what what you do with that and who you talk to and, and take a second. Happy to. Born in June, raised in April, what adoption can teach the world is one of the of the channels that I use to put a message out that is about practicality, um, rooted in personal narrative. So my mother of origin, Helen June, named me June Elizabeth when I was born. That is a family name that meant something. And, and finding that out was very moving to me. Um, as synchronicity and, and life would have it, my parents of experience, my adoptive parents, named me April Elizabeth without knowing I was already June Elizabeth. Okay. And I'm born in October. So born in June, raised in April is really the, the, co- the collective reality of my life, which is I was born and I originated in this family with this name, and I then was, was adopted into, and I'm experiencing this family with this name. It's all of me. So I take the calendar and I deconstruct it in a way that can help parents, professionals, and anybody who's interested really like take one little beat at a time to say, okay, it's June. It's Father's Day. It's also Juneteenth, right? Um, June brings so much. I talk about Father's Day and what it means to be um, parented and fathered by um, two two men. They don't know each other. One is parenting me regularly throughout the throughout my life, and the other doesn't even know I exist. So we can thread this needle very carefully through these conversations that um, I think illuminate some of the like day in and day out things that can occur in the extended family of adoption. So I am really committed to but like not just telling stories for the sake of stories, but to tell them in a way that gives people practical tools to, to better show up in, in the world of adoption. I love it. It's something I've, I've enjoyed immensely, and I'm really proud of it. And it's just one of the ways in which I can let my experience hopefully help others. Thank you so much for the work that you do and for taking time to talk to me a bit about these issues. I appreciate you being on Oregon Grapevine. Thank you for having me, Barbara. It was a joy. You've been listening to KLCC Media's The Oregon Grapevine, fresh pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. 